All right, back to our series on the church. This is a little examination on the church that was so that we can learn from them to be the church, to understand why we are the church that is and maybe the church we could be. And not because we copy them, but because we learn from them. That's what history is good for. It's what the past is good for. It's what reading the Bible is good for in terms of spiritual formation. We learn from the past. We let that past influence our present so that we have an idea about what we might do in the future. It's not the basis of our salvation. We're going to learn this tonight as if we didn't know this. This is something we circle back to many times in this group is that the basis of our faith is not the Bible. The basis of our faith is Christ Jesus, Christ resurrected. However, we do learn from these stories about him and we learn about us. So to me, it's a worthwhile journey to study the church by looking at the book of Acts. You can also study the church by looking at your local church. You can study the church by reading books on the church, by listening to people who have been in the church. All of those things are valid and we should do them all. But we learn something about the church in its earliest infancy, its formative years, by looking into the book of Acts. Strangely enough, we're going to not look into the book of Acts tonight for probably half of this lesson. And the reason for that is because tonight we will actually, we're going to skip a step, all right? And I'm going to tell you why I'm doing that. We're going to skip the fourth chapter almost entirely this is not a verse-by-verse -verse examination anyway on the book of Acts, so that's not a real big deal. But there is something in that fourth chapter I want to get to. We, enter, we get introduced to a character named Barnabas, the parenthetically called the Son of Consolation. And Barnabas is a character that gets a lot of play in the New Testament and almost no play today, which is weird. Like we know Peter, James, John, Paul. We don't know much about Barnabas. Yet Barnabas pops up over and over and over in the book of Acts. And then he resurfaces in Galatians and he resurfaces in another epistle. And it's like, we keep circling back to this guy, Barnabas. Barnabas to me reminds me, I'll say this and then we'll save the rest of this for next week. But Barnabas to me is a type of the day-to-day -day person in the church. They may not be remembered for time and eternity, but they're a really big deal in the moment. And everyone, and we all play the Barnabas role. We play a big role in the church of the moment. We may not be Paul. We may not be Peter. We may not be John. We're probably not but we're probably Barnabas, or at least we could be. Next week, <laughs> we'll deal with Barnabas. Now, the reason I want to skip that is twofold. One, I couldn't get the next story out of my head this week. The next story is Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. This famous moment where a man and woman come into the assembly of the early church and they lie about the money that they made on a piece of property because they're giving the proceeds to the church. And they lie about it and they do it separately. The man comes in and lies first and the woman comes in and lies about it second. And you know the story probably, but if you don't, here's the Cliff Notes version. They lie and Peter goes, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Because he knows they're lying and he obviously knows it because of his discernment in the Holy Spirit. And Ananias, the husband, falls over and dies of an undisclosed illness that suddenly kills him, heart attack, stops breathing, aneurysm, we don't know, he's dead. And they drag his body out and his wife Sapphira comes in behind him and she lies and Peter says, why are you lying? The same guys that carried your husband out are about to carry you out as well. Boom, she falls over and dies and they drag her out of the room. And it's easily the hardest to explain and darkest moment in the book of Acts considering we're on the other side of the resurrection. And you go, why is this in the book of Acts? 
and what in the world do we do with it? So before we're done tonight, we're going to tell you what we typically do with it. I'm going to work through that a little bit. And we're going to tell you, or we're going to try to land together on a question mark. I mean, we're literally just going to end on a question mark tonight that basically says, is this what we're supposed to do with this? Is this what we're supposed to learn from this? Maybe so. But I want to get you there because I think, that, okay, that's the number one reason why I skipped Barnabas because I'm really been thinking about Ananias and Sapphira. The number two reason I'm skipping Barnabas because I'm thinking about Ananias and Sapphira is because in the lectionary reading for Sunday, two days ago, June the 26th, the lectionary gospel reading in the church worldwide, which means very little to a lot of us sort of non-denominational Protestant evangelicals that don't follow the lectionary reading, but I try to keep my eyeballs near it once in a while. I let it go, I'll admit to you, I let it go about Pentecost. Because after you get past Pentecost, you enter uh, proper time for weeks and weeks and weeks, post-Pentecost. And so you got lectionary readings, but since we don't have Christian holidays going on, I haven't been paying that close attention. But I picked up the lectionary reading for Sunday, and it was Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through the end of the chapter. Now, why does that have to do with Ananias and Sapphira? Because when you get to Ananias and Sapphira and you teach it the way Paul White teaches it, your opening text is either going to be Ananias and Sapphira, which is not my opening text, or it's going to be Luke chapter 9, verse 51, which was the lectionary reading around the world two days ago. And when I picked that up this week and went, wow, now I think I know why the Holy Spirit's pushed me past Barnabas into Ananias and Sapphira. Might be because the global church, the global high church that's reading from the gospel lectionary, just taught this two days ago. So... There's something in the air in my own spirit about the Ananias and Sapphira story. And to really get to the bottom of that story, we go to the Jesus reading from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And it sounds a little bit like this. Apostolic authority will be our title. It came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's going to die. He sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Samaritans, as you know, kind of a cross of Jew and Gentile ideology, kind of a hybrid Jewish faith, got their own version of the Torah, their own celebrations, their own feasts. He entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. I don't worry too much about what it looks like if his face is set for the journey to Jerusalem. It kind of, kind of tells me that they could tell he didn't want to be there. It's kind of like meeting someone and you can tell they're looking past you to someone else. And so you shake their hand and give your friendlies, but you know, they didn't come here for me. They're here for him. And that's what they could tell. Jesus walks into the village, but he's got his eyes set on the cross. And so he just, because of that, the village sort of decides not to receive him because his face is set somewhere else, 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? So the response of James and John to the Samaritans rejecting Jesus is, hey, how about we kill them? Yeah, there we go. How about, and not just we kill them, how about we ask God to kill them with fire because... 
Elijah did it. By the way, Elijah is an Old Testament character, and so they're actually leaning back into their Bibles, so to speak, to find a good old-fashioned scripture for where God kills people, and they're grabbing that old-fashioned scripture, and they're going, you want us to do exactly what Elijah did, but Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. I think verse 55 should be seared into the brain of every believer somewhere in your very early first class as a Christian. You know, whenever you come to Christ and they start telling you all this stuff, here's what you need to read. We're going to introduce you to your baptism. We're going to tell you about the Holy Spirit. This is a Bible. We gave you a copy of your own Bible. You can read this every week. You need to learn how to pray every day. One of the scriptures they ought to give you is Luke chapter 9, verse 55. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. And the reason why we ought to have that seared in our brains is because our response to the things of the world or to the things of God or to the things of whatever, our response are often influenced by a spirit that is not the Holy Spirit. And even when we think we're being scriptural, and we've got a bunch of Bible behind us, we really need to check our spirit so that we know that what we are doing looks more like Jesus than it does anything else. Because Jesus' response is, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to kill people. Hear this? The Holy, the man, the Jesus did not come to kill people. Jesus come to save people. I like to think of it this way. If you are describing a scenario and people are dying and you are attributing it to God, I say you don't know what spirit you're of. Jesus did not come to kill people. Jesus come to save people. I hope you can catch why we're reading this before we read Ananias and Sapphira. Because this is Jesus and I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not a follower of Peter. I'm not a follower of the early church. I'm a follower of, I, hope, I think you can see where we're going to end up with this. I'm a follower of Jesus. And my Jesus says, hey, Paul, check your spirit. Watch your attitude. Make sure you're of the Holy Spirit and not some other spirit. And if I go, hey, Lord, I don't know, am I? Okay, here's your litmus test. Are you hoping they'll die or are you hoping they'll live? And if you're hoping they'll die, ding, 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 there's, your, there, there's where you know you're not following the Holy Spirit. And so very simply put, Jesus rebukes his own disciples as they quote the Bible. Do you want us to call down fire on them from heaven? Now, to be fair, let's go read their story. Because they're working with this part. Right? We do this a lot. I show you. They're working with this stuff back here. Good old Old Testament. They don't call it that. For them, it's the Scriptures. Scriptures contain the Torah. Scriptures contain the Prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, and a lot of stories, a lot of historical events that happen in the lives of Israel. Two of their heroes are Moses and Elijah. Moses in the New Testament starts to represent the law Elijah in the New Testament starts to represent the prophets. In other words, Moses is the greatest giver of the law. He's like the federal head of Old Testament. And then Elijah represents the chief of all the prophets. You've got your Jeremiah's and your Isaiah's and your Daniel's, but you don't have anybody quite like Elijah. 
because Elijah is this mouthpiece of God in the Old Testament that sort of rises above the fray. I want to read for you a story in 2 Kings where Elijah has told the king that he is going to die. And the king, who was unconscious when that prophecy went out, wakes up and says, what was the prophet that said that? And they go, "Mm, I don't know. He was a hairy dude wrapped in fur and he was a wild looking guy. And the king goes, that's Elijah. I always like that in in 2 Kings 1. Like he knows immediately. He goes, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. I've ran into this cat before. Go get Elijah. All right. And so they send out a company of men. 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 9. The king sent a captain of 50 with 50 men. So he went up to him and there he was sitting on top of a hill. And he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And what happens next? Fire comes down from heaven and consumes him and his 50 men. 51 crispy critters at the bottom of the hill. All Elijah had to do was snap his fingers. Then he sent another captain of 50 with his 50 men. You think this is going to work? We killed the first 51 with fire. Let's send 51 more. This is the insanity of running, throwing troops at the wall. You know, just keep throwing soldiers into the breach. Here comes 51 more. Man of God, king said, come down quickly. They added quickly there, by the way. That's going to move him. Elijah answered and said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven, consume you and your 50 men. And lo and behold, the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. 51 more crispy critters. We've killed 102 people. We've snapped our fingers twice. That's all Elijah's really had to do. And then a third captain. All right, let's just keep chucking men at him. A third captain of his 50 with his 50 men. The third captain of 50 went up, came, fell on his knees before Elijah, pleaded and said, man of God, watch this little twist. Please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight because the last 102 guys were not precious in your sight and you killed all of them. Let us be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50s with their 50s. That's 102. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he rose and went down with him to the king. And interestingly enough, what causes this change in Elijah, I think, is that little moment. Let me put a little succinct bow on this passage. Elijah uses his authority to call down fire and destroy 102 men. Only when he's confronted with the line, let life be precious in your sight, did he change course. There's no indication in the immediate text that he did anything wrong. We do not get to the end of the story and God go, Elijah, why'd you do that? And so if you read 2 Kings chapter 1 and you watch the man of God bring fire down on the enemies, and you walk away from 2 Kings chapter 1 and you get into 2 Kings chapter 2, Chapter 3, chapter 4, there's no mention of this. You get through the entire Old Testament and God never reprimands Elijah for this move. Which leads James and John to believe the following. If you're a man of God and you have authority and people don't respect that authority and they look at you cross-eyed when you walk into Samaria and you're the son of God, you are within your scriptural rights of calling down fire from heaven and burning every single one of them until they are dead. So James and John are not being cocky And they're not being mean. They're being spiritual. When they look at Jesus and say, do you want us to kill them the way Elijah killed them? Because that's what God does when he's mad at you. That's the 
Hear me out. That's their idea. But they got Scripture. Are you, are you with me? They, it's their idea. But do they got Scripture? They got a good one. And they got a Scripture that God never even reprimands Elijah. They don't get to the end of it and God goes, this is a terrible idea. But when we go look at the story, what we see happening is Elijah's calling down fire. 51 of you dead. 51 of you dead. And then when Elijah's question, let life be precious in your sight. All I could hear as I was thinking about that is that Jesus loves the little children song. All the, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious. And I had that in my mind all day. That line is the one line from a song I remember as a kid in the church that contained a line from 2 Kings 1 precious in his sight and so the guy goes if our life is precious then spare us and it was that idea of life being precious it would not allow elijah to move past that and so we see that once life became precious elijah kind of changes his tune there's no indication in the text it's wrong but the final word on everything scripture included is jesus jesus is who we are followers of so what we have to do is see what would Jesus say about the second Kings incident? What do you think Jesus would say? Luke 9:55. He turned and rebuked them and said, "You do not know what manner of spirit you're of." He didn't say, "What you guys are saying is unscriptural." He didn't say, "That's a stupid idea. You're misunderstanding the Bible." No, what he said is, that's the wrong spirit. My question to you is, was it the right spirit when Elijah did it? And then it's the wrong spirit when James and John want to do it. Or was it the wrong spirit when Elijah did it? And we just don't figure it out until Jesus tells us that's the wrong spirit. I think you can tell that's what I lean to. <laughs> it wasn't the right spirit when Elijah did it. But we didn't know it until we get to Jesus because the answer for what is good is in Jesus. This is why we live in a world where people are always saying, Scripture says. Scripture says. Scripture says. Scripture says. You hear that? You've heard it this last week. A lot. And it's not just this last week, but you hear it a lot if you pay attention. Scripture says. Scripture says. Scripture says. I'm not impressed. When people say to me, Scripture says, I'm not impressed. And I'm going to tell you why I'm not impressed. Because Scripture says... If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and kill all 102 of you. Scripture says that too. But Jesus says, you know not what spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy lives. I came to save them, which tells me Scripture says what Scripture says. And I take Scripture serious. But Jesus says what gives life, and I follow Jesus. Jesus identifies where man's spirit is interfered in the work and Jesus becomes the template. Jesus becomes the center pole for everything in our faith. Now, Elijah walked in an authority and in his authority, he called down fire on 102 people. He did that. Second Kings one shows us that he did it. This isn't some magic trick. They're not faking dead. They're dead. How is it that this guy calls fire down on 102 people? Why didn't God just stop him? It's a legit question. Why didn't God go, no, it doesn't work that way. We're not going to call down fire. Well, that's my conundrum in this passage. That's my issue there. I go, what is it that I'm missing? Go to Jesus. 
All right, I'm gonna try to do what I'm teaching you to do. Go to Jesus and watch what Jesus says and see if we can learn something about what Jesus says. Now, I don't wanna put all the text back up again, but I wanna remind you of this. The passage that we read to you was from Luke 9, 51 through the end of the chapter. I didn't read through the whole chapter. End of the chapter is like 62. We stopped somewhere around 55. All right, so late in chapter nine, Jesus goes to Samaria, and the Samaritan village rejects him. And James and John go, you want us to call down fire and kill him? Jesus goes, you don't know what spirit you're of. That's late in chapter 9. Let's go to the top of chapter 9. That will get you the road to the you know not what manner of spirit you be of. Right. So we go to the top of the chapter. I don't want to read the whole chapter, but I want to go to Luke 9, 1 and 2. Jesus called his 12 disciples together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. So at the top of the chapter, Jesus gave them authority. Much like Elijah, much like Moses, who walked in a God-given authority on the earth, and the disciples walk out of this incident with the authority to overcome demonic powers, to cure diseases, to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. And one of the first things they decide to do with that authority is call down fire on a Samaritan village like Elijah and kill everybody because they don't want to accept Jesus. Their authority is going to be a problem. Are you picking up on that? So after the you know not what manner of spirit passage you're of, let's go check out. Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5. Certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, kept back part of the proceeds. His wife was aware of it. They brought a certain part, laid it at the apostles' feet. They brought a certain part. They didn't bring it all. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. This is interesting that Peter would say this because Jesus once looked at Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. So saying Satan has filled your heart doesn't mean you're demon-possessed, doesn't mean Satan's literally possessed the body of so, so was Peter. But that you've become adversarial. That's the accusation that Peter gives. You've become an adversary to the Holy Spirit. You've kept back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, wasn't it your own? After it was sold, wasn't it under your control? Why'd you conceive this thing in your heart? In other words, you could have just kept whatever you wanted to keep. You didn't have to come in here and lie about it. You say the land was worth this much, but it was really worth more. Why didn't you just say what it was worth? Give what it was worth. What, what's this whole trick about? Coming in here and lying? Why'd you conceive this thing in your heart? You didn't lie to men. You lied to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, breathed his last. So he dies. Great fear comes upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. And if you stopped right here, you'd go, boy, that was unfortunate. He just fell over and died at a really inconvenient time for him, but a really convenient time for Peter. It makes Peter look really like he's got a lot of authority. And you can almost let Peter off the hook. In fact, I've heard it taught that, well, Peter didn't do anything. He just fell over and died. And then comes his wife. Three hours later, his wife comes in, doesn't know what happened. Peter answered, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yep, so much. Peter said to her, how is it you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They're going to carry you out. So this line right here does, is where we're sure Peter isn't off the hook. He tells her she's going to die right before she dies. So he's either super prophetic and sees the death angel on its way down in the spirit realm at the moment, or it's Peter himself who is speaking the death 
into Ananias and Sapphira, and Sapphira falls over and dies. Immediately she falls at his feet, breathes her last. The young men came in, found her dead, carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came on all the church and upon everyone who heard these things. And this story, this dark spot at the beginning of chapter 5, led to the following kind of preaching when I was coming up. Get ready, it's going to be really bad. I'm not, there's no way to sugarcoat this. This is how I heard it preached. This is how I preached it. Don't lie to God. Because it may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But I'm telling you this. You don't get by. You can lie to me. You can lie to this church. You can lie to this ministry. You can lie to your spouse. But you better be truthful before God. Because it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next year, but I can tell you there's coming a time you'll lie your last time to God. Because there are sins you can commit that God will step into this dimension and drop you dead. And I mean, and, and you say, ooh, gosh, that's rough. Of course that's rough. And what would happen in the church is you'd be like, ooh, oh boy, I gotta, man, I gotta clean some stuff up. You get up here, hit that Hammond B3 organ, let's get this baby rocking because we're going to bring some people up to the altar and you're going to start telling the truth by God because if you don't, this might happen to you. Now, I'm being a little funny, I know, but listen, I'm telling you, that was, that was the whole way Acts chapter 5 was handled. But I want to ask you this, why wouldn't it be handled that way? Because you got Peter, the rock, literally the rock of the early church in his first major confrontation with someone trying to cheat the church, and how does he handle it? They don't counsel him. They don't take him in the back room. They don't even try to lead him to Jesus. He kills him. He just, boom, you're dead. When your wife comes in in three hours, boom, she's dead. And fear falls all over the people. And the bad part is, is it's not repudiated. Acts 5 doesn't say this was a terrible idea and the church should have never done it. Acts 6, quiet. Acts 7, quiet. Acts 8, quiet. Paul comes along in Acts 8, Acts 9, road to Damascus. He goes and sees Jesus in Arabia, sets on the mountain, gets the new covenant. Never, ever writes about the Ananias and Sapphira incident. Never gets brought up again. The entirety of the New Testament. So what else are we going to do with it? So when I come into grace, I heard it preached this way. The Ananias and Sapphira story really happened, but it was an allegory for law and grace. Ananias is a derivative of the Greek name John. John, a derivative of the Greek for grace. So Ananias was a, to all who were there, was a form of grace. And Sapphira, Sapphira, her root is sapphire. Sapphire stones, according to the Old Testament, are what the law was written on. Ten Commandments on sapphire stone. And so what God was trying to teach the church is that grace and law do not belong in the church. And so when grace and law combine and walk into the church, they fall over and die. God won't put up with it. That's how I heard grace teachers teach Ananias and Sapphira. Here's how I landed, having come through the first one and then having been taught by the second one. And so I landed in what I felt was a much safer spot for a long time. It sounded something like this. Sin finished off Ananias and Sapphira because the end of sin is death. And I don't know when or how sin finishes people off, but it does. Don't blame God. Blame sin. And when they sinned, 
when sin is finished, it brings forth death. And it just so happened that Ananias and Sapphira met their death right there. And it worked out as a great object lesson for the early church. I don't care which of those three you like or want. I don't see Jesus in those three. Um, the first one, I can't live with. That there are sins that you commit that God, who put all sins into His Son on the cross, now the judgment of this world is come and now the prince of this world is cast out. And yet, if you cross a line, God's going to show up and kill you. And He'll probably kill your spouse too. Um, I don't have any room for that because I'll give you, here's my reason why. Luke 9.55, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's life. He came to save them. Who do I follow? Jesus. I don't have room for the second one anymore because it's over everybody's head. There's nobody in that room, particularly the two people that died, that are going to get the message of grace and law shouldn't be married and walk into the church because if grace and law try to get married and walk into the church, they're going to fall over and die. What good does it do for Ananias and Sapphira to be the object lesson that nobody in the church got? I think that's tweaking a little too hard to try and make it the square peg fit in the round hole, and I just don't believe it, and I'll tell you why. Because you know not what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's life. He came to save Why do I keep going back to that? Because you can't get away from it. Jesus didn't come to kill people. So how did this happen? I hope you can figure out that it happened much the same reason it happened for Elijah. Because... The disciples of Jesus were given direct authority by Christ and they had to learn to use it and they had to learn when and they had to learn how not to use it. And after that whole you know not what manner of spirit episode, Jesus begins to teach them how to use it. That was Luke 9.55. Remember? Look at Luke 10. Right after that episode. Luke 10.10. 10. Whenever you go into a city and they don't receive you, Go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. What do you not say if you go into a city and they don't accept you? You don't say, hey, can we call down fire on them like Elijah? <laughs> they just tried that one chapter earlier. So now Jesus goes, okay, let's have a, let's have a lesson. I told you guys you didn't know what manner of spirit you are of, that I don't come to kill men. So the next time you go into a town and they don't accept you, just wipe the dirt off your feet. No mention of fire, no mention of Elijah, no mention of killing people. This is the exact scenario they wanted to fry Samaritans in one chapter ago. So almost immediately, Jesus goes to work teaching them, going, oh boy, we got to have some lessons. Remember that time we went to that Samaritan village and you guys wanted everybody to die like Elijah? In the future, in the future, when you go into a town and they don't like you, don't come out and ask if you can kill people. No, just shake the dust off your feet. Sort of an old world allegory for move on. <laughs> There's nothing to see here. Oh, and if you think they need judged, you think they all deserve to die, here's what I want you to do about that. It's going to be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. But you don't get to do that. See, you didn't have anything to do with Sodom falling. That's on God. So I'll tell you what, you don't get to call down fire on them when they don't like you. 
You just hand them off to God. You let God do what God's going to do. You learn to control your authority. And in case that didn't work, sneak ahead five more verses. Same chapter. And Jesus says this. He sends 70 of his disciples out and they cast out devils. And when they get back, they go, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. In other words, this authority is amazing. If we opened our mouth, it happened. Now, Jesus is probably thinking, of course it did. That's what my authority is all about. By the way, if that happens, be careful how you open your mouth, right? Jesus said it something like this. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven because that's what happens when they used their authority. That's not an old. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven is not an antediluvian pre-Adamite fall of the devil from heaven. That happened when they started casting out devils in Luke. Jesus, every time you use your authority, Satan's fall, accusers fall, powers of darkness fall when you use your authority. Behold, I give you the authority. Look at it. If Jesus gives it to you, you got it, right? Now, this is the disciples. This is Peter. This is the same guy going to kill Ananias and Sapphira. I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in that, this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't get excited because you got authority. Be excited because you belong in the kingdom. That ought to be enough. Let that be what you are fired up about. So here's, my, here's where I am now. I don't think Peter did the right thing with his apostolic authority in Acts 5. And I don't think he did the right thing for several reasons. One, it's never repeated. It's never even talked about in the remainder of the New Testament. And it's really hard for me to believe that if the modus operandi of the early church was to drop you like Elijah when you did something wrong, i got to believe it gets codified somewhere in the New Testament teaching. i got to think Paul comes along who's laying, the dude's laying out circumcisions and feast days and what the Sabbath looks like, and he forgets to tell you you'll die if you lie to the Holy Spirit. He just dropped that. It seems odd to me that the rest of the New Testament runs from the Ananias and Sapphira story like it never happened. Can you see that? They run from it like it never happened. Like, if we don't talk about it, it's not there. But we're never going to do this again. Not only do they not talk about it, they don't repeat it. Like, they, I mean, they don't repeat it. They don't repeat it in action. They don't start dropping people left and right as the New Testament goes on. And another thing, it doesn't look like Jesus. That's my biggest reason I don't think Peter uses apostolic authority because here's Jesus with a chance to do the same thing. And what was Jesus' answer? You know not what manner of spirit you're of. Son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but save them. The only way in, the, in this hour that I'm able sometimes to watch preacher clips is because I remind myself, Paul, relax, don't get mad. They know not what manner of spirit thereof. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, he came to save them. Paul, calm down. They know not what manner of spirit thereof. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, he came to save them. But the Bible says, Paul, relax, <laughs> just chill out, breathe, serenity now. 
<laughs> Just the son of, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. And I don't want to just think they don't know what manner of spirit they're of. I don't want to get controlled by some spirit that says, man, you get up there the next time you preach and you hammer hell out of them because they need to hear that this thing is, you, Paul, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. The son of man doesn't even kill them. Doesn't even kill the ones you disagree with. He come not to destroy them, but to save them. So it doesn't look like Jesus. Now look at this last part. We do not see a reprimand. Not in Acts 5, not in Acts 6, not in Paul, nowhere. But that's not unusual. Because we don't see Elijah reprimanded until we get to Jesus. Which makes me think, maybe the church is meant to gradually learn the lesson of Acts 5 without the Holy Spirit giving the reprimand in the book of Acts. Maybe we are supposed to learn the reprimand. And the reprimand is this. We do not bring death we only bring life. I think in 2,000 years of church history, surely we should have learned the lesson that we are not the bringers of death. We are the bringers of life. So quite frankly, the early church had an apostolic authority that I don't think we completely walk in. Now, some people don't agree with that. They think we share the exact same apostolic authority that Peter shared or that James or John shared. But I believe that Jesus gave an apostolic authority to the early church to do what they did. And I think they... I think for the most part, we see amazing things they do with it, but we see an Acts 5 example where they do something awful with it. But that doesn't get us off the hook. So let's end with a question. What are we supposed to do with this lesson today in our lives? We've each been given gifts and all of us walk in the anointing of the Spirit. That's a fact. The anointing of the Spirit. We did 1 John together. 1 John, you're smeared over with the Holy Spirit. You already have an anointing. Now, what you do with that anointing or what that anointing is for, that's unique. But you all have gifts as well. Some of you haven't stirred them up. Some of you stirred some of them up. Some of you have let them lie dormant for a while. We've all done that. We have gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit. You have what you don't have and you have what you don't have. And that's why we need each other because that's the body of Christ working in tandem. While we may not have the apostolic authority given to the disciples of Jesus, we do still have the ability to minister life and death to those around us. And I mean, death comes in many forms because you have the power to kill people with your tongue. Yeah. And you may not drop them, but, but Acts 5 maybe is not an analogy that we're not supposed to kill people in the church as much as it's an analogy that we're supposed to watch how we use our mouth because sometimes we're killing people in the church. Because we're opening our mouth and we should keep it closed. Jesus had already told them in Luke 10, nothing's going to hurt you. So what was Peter so scared of in Acts 5? Remember, Luke 10, I give you the power of authority over all demons and nothing will hurt you. And Ananias and Sapphira come in and Peter riles up and has his moment. And Ananias and Sapphira fall over and die and fear falls over the church. And I, for one, don't believe that it had to be this way. I don't think we have to try to build our churches out of fear. I don't think we have to try to... I, I, I'm not cutting the early church down. I've not done that this entire study. But I'm also not going to hold them on a pedestal like we're supposed to copy their every move. I think we're supposed to learn from them. And when they get something right, maybe we realize that there's some things we ought to tweak and try to get right. But when they get something wrong, avoid it. Otherwise, start a ministry where you try to kill everybody that walks through the door. Now, here's the really sad part. And I mean this, and I'm not a bit happy about this. You'll make money doing that. And you'll build a church. 
because we are a people who think that power is when someone gets stepped on and we celebrate winners. And so if someone can win by stepping on other people, they'll always have a following because there's people that admire strength. Notice I put that in quotes because we call that strength. They admire strength. And when you create a culture where winning and strength is the end goal, it don't matter how you get there. Step on as many people as you got to step on because that's an admirable anointed quality. And it looks nothing like Jesus. So sadly, you can actually build something by making sure you try to kill something in people when they walk through the door. And you can sell it by, I'm trying to kill it in you so that we can recreate something new in you. We're trying to fix you. And we forgot that our job is not to fix people. Our job is to share the good news of Jesus with people. And they enter into his death, not our words of death. Because if you want to go after people, you can find something to go after them. And you can do it right here with your mouth. And the death that flows out of that is part of our responsibility. Comes in many forms. Be cautious. Be sensitive to the Spirit. What do you do with this? I don't know what you do with Ananias and Sapphira. That's where I land. I land on, I don't ever want to use the gifts, the anointings, the authority of the Holy Spirit that He has given me to kill people in any way. Why not? It's in the Scriptures. You know not what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. And so all I need is, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. And the next time I think, boy, I wish I could really give it to somebody, I just want to remind myself, Paul, maybe this is one of those moments where you know not what manner of spirit you be of. Apostolic authority in the early church was a crucial ingredient. I think authority of the believer is a crucial ingredient today. But I think with the authority of the believer comes the responsibility of the believer to listen to the Holy Spirit, close our mouths when they need closed, and when we open them, minister the gospel of life. And if we can't do that, mama said it right. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And maybe what the Holy Spirit is saying to us post Acts 5 is, if you can't say anything with life, don't say anything at all. Father, thank you for once again giving us the chance to turn the spotlight on Jesus. Where we've dropped the ball in exegesis and in interpretation, then Father, don't let that grow. Just kill that at the root. But where we've shined a light on Jesus, where we've made Jesus look good, where we've taken Jesus serious as the absolute centerpiece of our faith, then Father, there, I believe, nothing but life can grow because life is in Christ. And help us. Every time we open our mouths, we have a chance to spread life or spread death. In fact, your word says there's life and death in the power of the tongue. And Father, let's learn how to use that as sons and daughters of, the, of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.